and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast, coming at you recorded. And, oh, that's a haunting ghostly dice. Little little haunting refrain. Uh, You know, it's the the banshee of dice long lost. Oh. Uh, Just, you know, traipsing across the barren moor at midnight. Oh, nice. Like a banshee. Oh. Well, I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And we're the Dicemen of the Dicer Screaming Podcast, coming at you here, of course, recorded from the Patton Hacienda, complete with meowing cats. So, you might hear them in the background, our apologies, but <laughs> our cat well, is relentlessly in heat, so. Yeah, well, you know, uh, clearly she's a big fan of attention, so. Yep, and she okay. obviously likes podcasts, so. Yeah. She really is very uh, drives her nuts. <laughs> hey, that's right. Our podcast drives the ladies wild. Oh, well. Oh, yeah. That's a much different take than I was going for, but hey, we're at the Dice of Screaming. What else can you expect? <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, it's been a busy uh, weekend for us. Uh, the salted beer of gaming podcasts. Ooh, yeah, I gotta <laughs> perk it up. <laughs> oh, never liked it myself. Ah, terrible thing to do to a beer. Ah. But it depends on the tastes. You know, they're different people, different strokes, different folks. Right on. So um, we've had a busy weekend. Uh, our Holmes, Metzner, and uh, Moldvay, Vis podcast went over pretty well, and we had a lot of call-ins. So yeah. we're going to get to those, as well as some uh, topics for our Topic Tuesday that uh, is going to set some groundwork for some stuff we're going to be doing on this podcast coming up here. So uh, we're going to get right into it here. So uh, first off is coming up is Larry Hamilton giving us his two cents on what we talked about with the Holmes, Moldvay, and Metzner. Hello, Larry. Hey, fellas. This is Larry with Follow Me and Die. I really enjoyed your episode on Holmes, Moldvay, and Mincer. Uh, interesting on the Holmes blue box, that's what I started with. And in the original version of the box, they did not have a module. They had these monster sheets and some, I believe it was dungeon geomorphs. Uh, and they had chits instead of dice. Um, and that's what I had. Uh, sorry, a car next to me had a funny uh, alarm instead of a beep for their lock in their car. Anyway... Um, and another interesting thing about Holmes Blue Box is it used Dexterity for initiative, which it either got that from Metamorphosis Alpha, which did the same thing, or Metamorphosis Alpha was influenced by something else. And I'm going to have to call back. And the other thing about uh, Holmes Blue Box is it was basically organizing and making sense out of the three original books that were some have posited for a role player they weren't very well organized but for a war gamer they were organized so I don't know I wasn't into war gaming at that level by any means to see it that way but uh, that may be a point but uh, it only went to third level, and it said, well, of course, when AD&D comes out, you'll want to get that. So as each of the core books for AD&D were released, we added that to the mix. And once the Dungeon Master's Guide was released, we stopped using the blue box altogether. And we thought BASIC was for babies, so I didn't know what was in BASIC of the newer versions until the current years. 
All right. Hey, thanks for that, Larry. Uh, yeah, we did uh, mention that the uh, later versions did come with a module and, uh, of course, dice. First, they had the chits and some threw in some extras, but that would come later. But, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, they, they didn't start off packing a module inside. Uh, or it was more of like, you know, what did they have in the warehouse at the time to combo it with? Right. Uh, it was so variable, which I mean tells you how chaotic the situation was for this company just suddenly exploding into business <laughs> uh, that it wasn't absolutely consistent contents i think that's fascinating actually i think it's really cool yeah it was showing that where tsr was headed and of course they were breaking off from the normal D license and going into the AD&D license that for legal reasons <laughs> they had to remain distinct but that was kind of mid-stride of where they were at Similar, but legally distinct from, yeah, yeah, a lot of, lot of caution and bet hedging there. Uh, yeah. But, and, but it was completely necessary and appropriate given the situation at that time. So, yeah, I thought I, we I'm also, not, I'm not gainsaying them at all on that. I also thought we mentioned pretty much that it was only first through third level, which was one of its things. And, uh, it also, uh, I don't know so much about the wargaming, uh, thing because it didn't have the paragraph numbering like 1.1.12, that would go off with a lot of the Avalon Hill stuff. But yeah, the, the engineering and chemistry department's, uh, you know, yeah. bullet point uh, <laughs> style was common to uh, wargaming indexes. Uh, they, I'll hand it to them. They were pretty well organized for a bunch of people, you know, publishing about a hobby uh, that was on the side from their work. You know, they were... The war gamers were a surprisingly thorough bunch. Yeah, you needed to have it so you could look it up in the middle, like, what are the rules for crossing terrain that is already guarded and overwatch and all those situations. But Role players, a little less so. A little, yeah. less, little less keen on the organizational skills. Well, one of the legacies, uh, when you talked about some of the rules, uh, yeah, we could have went over some of the spells that were directly in there, like Raven Feeblement uh, was in the... Holmes version versus like it wasn't didn't make an appearance at all in basic and uh yeah it was uh i don't know i don't want to say that uh, the Holmes version was lacking anything because i think he did a great job in organizing the rules from where they were in the original white box set and making it more uh, approachable but that's where i started uh i had to borrow a copy from a friend and uh, finally ended up getting a copy for christmas and um which came with dice, real green ones. Um, that was weird. Never <laughs> seen those before. Oh. Or ever again. But um, it was uh, a nice little game and setup. And, uh, you know, one of the things I don't think he gets credit for is the format that he set for making the role-playing games, how they introduced it right from the start. I mean, he did kind of borrow a little bit from Man and Magic's uh, booklet one from the uh, white box where... You know, this is how you roll characteristics, this is what they mean. He did set out tables and charts to kind of help get that going. But more uh, to the point that uh, Holmes uh, started the what was called the Dungeons & Dragons game versus the AD&D game. And a lot of people like you, you know, looked at uh, D&D as kitty stuff, which more is the pity on that. It, it was yeah. a really well-developed game. That We, uh, we, we take that with the... 
a grain of salt because we were all adolescents at the time and, you know, the at the first opportunity to distinguish ourselves as older or more adult or more knowledgeable, we tackled that like crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, just wow. Uh, but you look back many, many years later and there, there's nothing unadult about original D&D. Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's a really good game and uh, it bears some uh, looking back on more than just with rosy glasses it was a well-established game in its own right but thank you for the call in and doing a great job so we're gonna go and uh, get some other ones done here but keep them coming larry and great job on your blog love the name follow me and die <laughs> it's still a favorite all right we're gonna do some dave albridge right in a moment hey up guys shandy andy from unguarded treasure here dave aldridge from deeper centile put me on to you I mentioned about your Appendix N podcast, and I've had a listen to that. Enjoyed it very much. And enjoyed your latest one with the Holmes Mulvey Mensa discussion. Uh, love your sort of neutral stance you take, not coming down heavy on one side or the other, just throwing out some ideas and observations. It makes for a lot more interesting listening, I think, than have somebody rant on about one particular side of an argument. Um, and I'd be very interested if you decide to put out an episode about what if, as regarding to where role-playing games might have come out of, as I did a similar podcast myself. be interesting to see um, some other ideas about where it might have all come from. Oh, my bad. Uh, we already did, Dave Albridge, so yeah, um, uh it's been that kind of week. So, <laughs> uh, so that moved us to Shandy, Shandy Andy. Andy. So, yeah, Shandy Andy, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words and glad you're listening. Um, we're glad that uh, Dave tuned you in to us. And, uh, yes, we thank you for the high praise about us being neutral. That is where we really try to strive. Yeah, here. it's it's very much about how much we have enjoyed uh gaming overall and how much the stages the dungeons and dragons went through the the incarnations and the evolutions uh none of those you know stand out in our minds as terrible i mean yeah. obviously we're we're less i think it's pretty well known that we were less than thrilled with the 4th edition uh but you know we're back on board with with the 5th but leaving that one flap aside uh, we've been fans for a very long time, and we have a profound respect for all the people who were involved in the creative aspect back at the beginning. Uh, it, yeah. I don't think... If you took any one piece out of that Jenga tower, uh, it would all collapse. You know, you, you can't just pull one thread loose from the, from the weave and expect nothing to be changed. Uh, so I, I do not make a habit of bad-mouthing uh, any of the early creatives who were involved in right. D&D or ad and I think they all did an outstanding job, uh, from Holmes to Moldvay to Metzner. So. But all that aside, I do have this uh, one little caveat. is We will be doing a what-if where we think gaming would have come out with. And uh, that's also part of tonight's topic. We're laying a little bit of groundwork for that. So hopefully you'll uh, tune in to the ground for that as well. So thank you all, uh, Shandy Andy and Dave Albridge. You guys are great. And Dave, we're going to be visiting you very shortly. Oh, you better be ready. We're, we're coming for you. <laughs> Arm the perimeter. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> that's right. We got some. You know, get your landmine map. 
<laughs> yep, get it all ready because we're coming for you, buddy. All right, so we're going to go pay the bills real quick and be right back with some topics, so stick around. All right, and we're back, so thanks for listening in. And, of course, uh, you're here for some topic, and we're not here to disappoint you, although the topic might, I don't know. Uh, we, well, we, we didn't come here to disappoint you. But we're not going to rule it out. That's right. Stick with us. We'll get there. We'll, All right. I, we will find a way to... <laughs> we don't want to disappoint you, but we'll power through that. <laughs> so in line with what's going on in the Anchor podcast uh, sphere, is it a blogosphere? No, is it a sphere? I mean, is it a podcast sphere, not a blogosphere? I don't know. Yeah. It's a sphere. We're, we're pod peoples, uh, you know. Oh, pod Doing people. a Donald Sutherland and pointing at people going, Oh! Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Invasion Although, of the Pod Snatchers. Oh. That's a thing. <laughs> All righty. So uh, it's going to be that kind of podcast. Yeah, I'm it? out there. All right. I'm so. out there on the fringe. And speaking of that fringe, we're talking RuneQuest. Yep, that's our topic. We're talking about uh, where I was going to lead in is, since we're talking about uh, little small folk, including ducks, as well as what ifs, mm. where we're all playing would have come from, uh, yeah, we're going to have to talk about RuneQuest. We're going to have to lay some foundation and get some groundwork done here. So, more importantly, uh, RuneQuest uh, is a game of basically sword and sorcery adventure set more in the Bronze Age. And it involves magic, myth, and the gods to a level that few other role-playing games have ever tried. Or, well, for its point, that's been where it's going. It didn't really go out there to do anything firstus with the mostus. It was just that was where it came from. Yeah, this is we're talking about a, a creative involved here, uh, who, at the time that Dungeons and Dragons was also just beginning to take shape, and I mean literally in its infancy. We're we're talking like proto white box. Uh, this guy was already drenched in influences from fantasy fiction, from mythology, history, uh, and uh, spirituality. And he put together his own notions about a place. Uh, and those those first primal attempts were expressed through... Right. Well, so uh, let's name them. That's Greg yeah, Stafford. And that's, that... Yeah, we should just go ahead and throw it out there. Yeah, Greg they... Stafford, the creative mind behind RuneQuest. And it did not start off right out of the gate as a proper role-playing game. Tell me about what happened first. Well, I mean, he started uh, at Beloit College in about 1966. He took up mythological studies and uh, was heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell and a lot of the things. And that kind of shows through RuneQuest, which we'll touch on in a minute. But his really first gaming influences were U-Boat by Avalon Hill and... Uh, he would go on in 66 to start kind of formulating his own world, which he would call Gorantha. Now, at this point, I want to say that RuneQuest, uh, especially through the second and third edition, aren't tied directly to, uh, to Glorantha, although it, they are very obviously heavily attributed to it, and the magic system and a lot of the things are made for Glorantha specifically. But uh, again, uh, RuneQuest and third edition did change quite a bit of that but uh back to the main point he started a board game uh red moon and white bear which covered the struggles of the barbaric people of the satyr nation a loose alliance of barbarians and they're very fierce but uh, honorable 
storm god, Orlanth, and the somewhat devious and uh, manipulative lunar goddess, the red lunar goddess. And so thus the name Red Moon White Bear. Yeah, um, and that theme uh, recurs uh, throughout. I mean, uh, the, the impression of, um, you know, the fully-fledged, old, and powerful civilization uh, being almost corrosively corrupt, uh, and the, the peoples who have not necessarily fallen under the sway of that extreme level of civilization uh, retaining some degree of, uh, you know, independence from it. They, they, they had not... Uh, gone over to uh, yeah. civilization, ancient and, and wicked. wicked. Yeah, which uh, it was a rousing theme uh, that you, you'll see repeated throughout all of the incarnations of RuneQuest. Right, and um, it took place in Dragon Pass, which is an area steeped in legend and myth for the uh, world of Glorantha, and is the site of the Hero Wars, the God Wars, whatever you want to call it later. But um, RuneQuest came out uh, from Steve Perrin and Rain, Ray Turney and friends. Uh, they founded uh, Chaosium along with uh, Greg Stafford. Uh, Chaosium was kind of a play on the Oakland Coliseum. Chaosium, get it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, but it, it's got to be said that Chaosium Games, that that critical moment... With Greg Stafford and uh, you know Perrin and Turney, uh, when they joined forces and created Chaosium Games, uh, they proceeded to publish a blue streak of some of the best examples of early games that were not Dungeons and Dragons, and also token just influences. Literally one after another, just pop, pop, pop. I mean, when we talk about Call of Cthulhu as a game, and we speak of Stormbringer from Michael Moorcock's Elric series. Hawkmoon, uh, Ringworld. Yeah. Superpowers. These that. are all things that these guys brought to life. That, yeah, frankly, TSR was uh, dealing with its own stuff in-house and growing and developing. Uh, and here were these cats out on the fringe doing something completely different. Yeah, they were licensing and marketing stuff uh, a lot more than uh, TSR was. Uh, not that TSR wasn't trying, but the point was is that they were able to approach it with, hey, we're just not going to turn this into a level-based system. This is one where the characters grow with what they do and experience in the game. And that seemed to appeal to quite a few authors. But more on that on another topic. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll, but we'll... turning it back over to uh, Glorantha, here is uh, Greg Stafford trying to get this game uh, published, and uh, he failed about three times before uh, Chaosium got its uh, start. And their first role-playing game, of course, was RuneQuest. And it used the basic role-playing system, which was uh, uh, had hit locations. Uh, you're, you didn't have levels. You had percentile skills. And the more you use them, the more they increased. Uh, yes, you, you could, you know, increase your abilities, you know, your, your ability to uh, fight or act or speak. Uh, but you didn't really raise levels, per se. There were no actual, no level system at all. And, I mean, we've mentioned in, uh, you know, the in some past episodes, the fierce debate over leveling systems uh, versus more holistic styles. Uh, I I don't hate either one. I have Spoiler to alert, they're all good. Yeah, they're great. Uh, yeah. And it's a terrific change of pace oh, to yeah. work in a system that is... 
mostly accomplishment based. Not, yeah, not I don't just... get this uh, this uh, need to fractionalize or factionalize yourself like, oh, I only play like level based systems or I only play skill based systems. Hey, man, they're all role playing games. I hate to be all loosey goosey. Yeah, uh, the big Lebowski on you, but I'm just going to say this, man. It, it is an experience to play a new game. It's always been fun for me to see it from a different angle. Or I level. see them as merit batches. Like you got to collect them all. Okay, yeah. they're they're Pokemon. All right, you you know, like I played. This Can we just stick games. with the merit badges. Uh, well, all right, yeah, we were still in the happier zone there. I, I'm less less of a fan of Pokemon myself, but uh, Ryan Reynolds is a very <laughs> funny man. Uh, yeah, so, but but uh, <clears throat> that having been said, um, they're accomplishments, they're experiences, they're things that uh, they're not. You haven't failed if you played a game that you didn't think was as good as the other games. Uh, that was not a failure. Uh, and it's only a loss if, like, you had a terrible time at the table and you know came away with no happy memories. Well, I fell in a pit full of spikes. That was terrible. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, anyway, we, yeah, we've covered this before, so we're just going to keep moving on here. Uh, right. The big thing is is that Stafford um, developed the world of Glorantha, and it was a lot different. Uh, of course, it has familiar-sounding names like elves, dwarves, trolls, and giants, but they're much different. Uh, just an example before we get into the infamous part here. Dwarves are made out of stone. Uh, they are literally the manifestations of the laws of creation. Uh, elves are... They're plant-based humanoids. They are literally life given to plant, and um, you know there are different forms of elves. Yeah, guardians of the woods. You know, conscious of like their relationship with nature at all times. Whereas uh, dwarves are much more a rigid, absolute you know, men of stone who exist as a reflection of natural law. You know, they're so right. rigid, so absolute, so unyielding. Uh, they are stone. the elemental forces of you know, creation itself, yeah. fire, stone. Um, but then you have uh, trolls, which are a very diverse race, and probably right next to Varger are probably the some of the best examples of early original war, or, uh, role-playing creature creation. Uh, when he mentions Varger, that would be the from Traveler, Traveler right. from the game Traveler, the uh, kind of uh, lupine uh, wolf, you know. Uh, aggressive species that uh, eventually became a bipedal life form and was also competing. Right, and then when that book came out, along with the Aslan, um, they had a very unique culture and feel to them, and they weren't really derived from something else. You could kind of point and say, well, maybe they were ripping off this, and you would be right. But there were influences, but there was an awful lot of original material on the table. Now, this remains true in RuneQuest. Where, where you had trolls who... So much of this writing is... Just came out... Yeah, they have a name that's shared with many other creatures. And they're a unique race that is very deep and feels different and sometimes a little alien, but not extremely hostile. Although many of their, the ways that they live and their culture propagates themselves... And they view themselves, they can be viewed as adversarial at times, but they are not uh, overly violent or aggressive or vile, even though we'll put that on there. Yeah. But I, they're just different. And yeah, so, this is not the classic D&D troll at all in any respect. It, it simply, uh, you know, same name, but very different cultural background, very different practices and ideas behind it. Uh, again, you know, like with so many things in RuneQuest, there was a lot of original writing done to take something 
that had a common ancestor in human mythos and then bring into it a lot that was brand new, a very different perspective, and to break away from the like kind of rigid classical archetypes. That, yeah. Now, D&D, on the other hand, and I'm not characterizing this as better or worse, okay? No, we're... But in D&D, they often, more so than not, went with the classical archetype as much as possible. Yeah. Um, the, the common perception of... The troll, the lurking creature and beneath the bridge. D&D created its own stuff, too, before we took <coughs> it away. The Beholder. Oh, sure. And other uh, weird monsters that people like, oh, you know, D&D, you know, RuneQuest has weird monsters. Well, so does D&D. And from that time, I think, comes a wellspring. Yeah, I mean, of, Lurker Below, I, come on. Like, the room attacks you. Like, you're literally murdered by the linoleum. I, that, we'll get on another topic yeah, on D&D that D&D is full of that stuff, so I don't want to hear any of these, like... Ah, RuneQuest is too weird and out there. Except about one thing. Well, got to do it. Well, if you want to pull the trigger on ducks, let's wait till uh, we get through the next part, please. Okay. Well, I'm just going to discuss that they took a classical spin. It'll totally happen. Yeah, it will totally happen. And we'll go go, uh, point per point on that one. Toe to toe. Yeah, you're going to see it come out. But nonetheless, the theme from the Sartre peoples, the nation of Sartre with their prince, and their uh, ascendant king come into play here, and it is a conflict set in the world in Dragon Pass, a place of great magical mystery and importance that predates humanity. And there are many forms of humanity, and there are many different ways uh, in which humanity has kind of uh, expressed itself in this very magic and God-rich atmosphere, where everybody uses magic. It focuses every part of your life. Uh, um, from your <coughs> early beginnings, you are associated with a cult, not in the bad sense, but a cult of worshippers who follow a god or a specific local deity as each god changes in its community. And one of the main gods, of course, is Orlanth, but there's also Ernalda, the Earth Mother. And everybody is very intrinsically tied to these gods, even in other areas. Also worth mentioning, uh, in RuneQuest... Uh, you're not necessarily at odds with other people because you worship a different god or gods. Right. Uh, this is not a source of enormous contention most of the time. Except uh, with the exception it, of the lunar goddess. With and, the exception of the lunar goddess, which you know is, is associated with an empire that has aspirations on you know controlling a very large number of other places. So normally, uh, it's a great many people worshiping you know different ways. Uh, but having a kind of uh, loose respect for everyone who, you know, it, well, you know, it, in your heart, at your hearth, you give homage to this being, and at my hearth, I give homage to that being, uh, and never the twain shall meet will be fine. That is pretty common in RuneQuest, but faith and the influence that it has over your place in that society, uh, the way in which your character. Uh, develops associations with others or is entrusted with tasks. Uh, It's intimately connected and your ability to even resist outside influences. Right, uh, and there are enemy gods. The gods of darkness and chaos are your enemies. Um, Cacodemon, the vampiric gods, the elder gods of the chaos themselves that really defy description. Yeah, a little Lovecraftian, but 
these are the enemy gods. And yeah, you, nobody really follows those guys because everybody hates those guys. But well, yeah, once in a great while, you get an absolute nutcase that, yeah. you know, like, I hate everybody, so I'm going to go worship this thing. That Malaya, the goddess do. of disease and pestilence, is universally uh, despised. You didn't love me when I had a wet cough, so I have turned to her service and will destroy you all. Just uh, yeah, okay. That that's the thing. It can... Yeah, and they had several enemy races. The the uh, <laughs> the Tusk Riders, who are violent and overly aggressive and are constantly at war with people. Uh, the Brew, who sought to subvert and destroy all their culture, and they all have a mythological beginning and a reason why that they do these things, rather than versus like, well, they're just mean. Well, why are they mean? Well, okay, well, you could find that out in RuneQuest. And again, this goes back to. There are parts of RuneQuest where you can just hack and slash. You can loot and destroy, and that's perfectly fine. You can also delve into the mysteries and the archaeology. Yes, there's actually archaeology and relics and discovering things from the cultures that predate humanity in the game. Oh, yeah, you can go Arthurian style, where like it's a collection of loosely affiliated knights who are you know sworn to the same service and come together to accomplish things that one alone could not. Well, yeah, you have the uh, yeah barbarian tribes. Of, Orlanth is a good uh, sign of that. That he was uh, really uh, bullheaded and ignorant in his early days, and killed another god, and then had to have seven other gods and come and help him uh, resurrect the god he killed because he felt bad. Sorry, but he's honest. He may be a tough guy, but boy, is he! He's just honest as the day is long. Yeah, no, no deceptions with uh, Orlanth. But. Uh, you have also, it's a Bronze Age culture, and it's also ascending into the Iron Age. No, yeah, exactly. I was, I was and about the silver, to add And the, the other big thing that blew my mind was the silver standard. I'm like, why are we not going with the gold? Because, as I learned later, that silver was a more temperate metal than gold, which was seen as hard to work with. Uh, it was soft. soft. Yeah, and it didn't have... Which led to a wide variety of debasements. Uh, so right. as, as people were constantly mixing gold in the ancient world, you could never be 100% sure what you were getting uh, until like systems of weight and measurement began to become a thing hundreds of years later. So in the ancient world, gold not that trustworthy. The sound of silver yeah. landing on and metal. Even brass and bronze you. and the copper pieces that come out, were, they have different values. So there's a, this rich economy system that you know where you get treasure yes it does sometimes for the uh bookkeeper for the party keep a get a little uh headachey when you're diversifying your uh coin percentages from gold into silver and silver into gold and back and forth but it does add a certain austerity to it and i i want to pay this homage oh go ahead uh you know deadly serious uh runequest uh, in its initial release in the 70s, was the first introduction of a semi-realistic uh, role-playing game, ancient world uh, system of coin exchange. Okay, that the, the system for currency was more realistic than anything in D&D. Because &D. Uh, yeah. D&D has, for the sake of simplicity and for ease of play, it's a decimalized, you know, uh, 10 coppers, 10 silvers, 10... Yeah, it's a metric system, yeah. Uh, with the only exceptions having been the like later advent of Platinum and Electrum. Uh, but the the point being that the base system was, you know, like 10 of this equals 1, 10 of this equals 1. I never liked that. I always thought it was like a cheap Charlie cop-out because... And here, I 
The kimono is fluttering. This this is hold it in. You you gotta wait for the next segment. Okay. Uh, no. Uh, th- this kimono is fluttering over. I'm just gonna open it. This is my own nerdery, Uh-oh. full frontal nerdity ah, taking place. Avert your eyes. Right Roll for disbelief. I was a huge fan of numismatics and of coins, and I found like before I oh, even touched D and D, I was enamored of like coins of the ancient world, mm-hmm. uh, coins of the previous centuries. I, I thought it was all amazing, and so everything that I knew about coins, I opened up D and D, and here's this game where like you you've got to. All the names of classic pole arms that nobody has ever known, but their coinage system is bunk. Well, RuneQuest beat that. They delivered one of the most realistic of that time period, and they deserve maximum applause. Yeah, I thought there was one thing that would flip Mike's lid, but uh, of course that was another thing. He actually like, oh, you know, they have large and small? Coins, yes. Uh. Oh, okay, I totally get how that, so one equals... Or one twelve equals twenty four. Twenty four equals one. Okay, got it. Yeah, all the way up, and it's like, oh yeah, I got this. I'm like it's like you've been preparing for this all your life. Yeah, okay. And <laughs> nonetheless, the other thing about RuneQuest, the game, and we're talking a lot about Glorantha, so I'm going to go ahead and st- step aside and say that the RuneQuest game was also very good. Uh, uh, Greg Stafford had liked this other role playing game, D and D, and he thought about maybe making it uh, available for. Uh, RuneQuest, when he met some cats, uh, Steve Perrin and uh, Ray Turney, and they uh, had a system worked out where they took the D&D kind of style, mixed it with some things that they had from the SCA, like armor absorbs damage, blocking with your shield, pairing with your sword, um, lighter armor uh, makes you a little faster, heavier armor does slow you down, but... You know, it's good oh, protection. Yeah. And, and it, it's all percentile dice based initially. Uh, I mean, it's not that no other dice are used, but it, the principal operations of the game are done with percentile dice. Right, and hit locations and the effects of, you know, losing your limb or just getting numbed or a glancing blow. These are all things that happen in combat. So one-on-one combat in RuneQuest can be quite deadly. You just can't charge in. You see, a, you see six brew up ahead, Ooh. and there's only two of you. Might want to think about an ambush. Yeah, that, and that's assuming that you decide to go all the way through with this. You know, I mean, uh, with just two of you, you might just want to pass on this one. Let it, you know, just walk it walk it back. Right, and bring a couple extra. You know, guys that's the first time. thing where you look like this absolutely makes sense. We're outnumbered three to one. That's not good odds. Yeah, uh, RuneQuest is terrific in the respect that uh, it is a game with a likelihood of injury and harm that is high enough to give people pause, but is not instantaneously and unilaterally fatal. No, and uh, kudos to Warhammer Fantasy for picking it up and uh, going with that. They, they too, were inspired. Borrowed very heavily from RuneQuest. So uh, the game system was very sound, and the magic system involving uh, personal risk by you uh, dealing with cult spirits that were lied to you. Uh, you had, you know, to learn spells, you had to confront them and learn their challenges. And also learning spells was available to everybody, but you had spirit magic or battle magic, as it was initially called. And then you had rune magic, which came directly from the gods, which involved personal dedication and sacrifice on your behalf. Yeah. And that every day going to, the, or every week going to a temple replenished your rune magic was unique. So going to church is important in RuneQuest. And also sorcery in itself was a new form of magic that didn't rely on a lot of these things, but was carefully used. It had, it had its risks as well. Knowledge, 
is not easy to come by in a pre-literate society. And Correct. only few characters start with literacy in the game. So yeah, your principal source of learning is experience and the rote traditions told to you by other peoples. Uh, in, in that sense, uh, storytelling and communications are essential skills because you can't just read it in a book uh, right. most of the time. A few characters will have sufficient knowledge of language to sit down and read something that is written. Most will not. Uh, so that was another interesting facet that was much more true to uh, Bronze Age, Iron Age reality. Yep, and you know you had the clash of cultures and the gods war and on the hero war, and things have changed, and RuneQuest is now back in Chaosium hands, and it changed out a little bit, and uh, Greg Stafford has departed. But before he did, he wrote a couple novels, Harmas Saga and Arkat Saga, which detailed two different versions of heroes fighting both on the side of the Lunar Empire and on the uh, behalf of the Orlantian barbarians. But also RuneQuest would spawn some of the best products, I think, for a role-playing game. Griffin Mountain, uh, one of the best wilderness campaigns. Yes, sorry, Judges Guild wilderness campaign and uh, oh, no, all no. aside. I uh, mean, we're not dissing those. No, I mean, not dissing it at all. I'm just saying but that this is one of the best. There's so many things to do in Griffin Mountain. It's it. Campaign I've borrowed, in a box. Yeah, for literally years, you can play and not have the same experience in the same area twice. It, there's just so much to do. And it was so detailed and made sense and also linked together in a way that players didn't get distracted with side quests and other missions where there's a grand story. No. You made your own legend, and that was hard to do back in the day and still now. Yeah, it was not a well-fleshed-out idea at that time. So for the people at RuneQuest, much like uh, uh, the generous kudos we dole out to many of the early creatives, uh, we dole them out here as well. Uh, this is another case where... Something that had not been done before, uh, or if it had been done at all, had been done somewhat cruder, um, they hit it out of the park. Yeah, with Cults of Prax, <laughs> uh, Nightmare Cults, um, <coughs> the uh, entirety of the game expanded, and I think it raised the bar for the whole game community. And of course, uh, basic role-playing BRP went to make uh, Call of Cthulhu another um how do I want to put this? They made other genres of the game more approachable than they'd been before. So where now Call of Cthulhu is its own thing. But these the basic role-playing system is so solid and so simple and yet comprehensive that it really hasn't changed much. And it can uh, provide a wide variety of genres, including from space exploration, like in Ringworld, all the way down to uh, summoning demons into items, like in Stormbringer. It oh, doesn't... Yeah. The magic... Well, or virtues, too. Yeah, virtues, yeah, virtues for the, the law. The virtues of law and the uh, demons of chaos uh, could both be pipelined down into items. Uh, of course, not the major... Uh, oh, well, yeah, but, you don't want to do but that. But the, the lesser virtues and lesser demons could be bound into service as items. Uh, in as well as small spells and things of that nature, but... but yeah, uh, all told, I think that RuneQuest and Greg Stafford um, rightfully have their place as one of the crown jewels of role-playing experiences. Uh, but, of course, with that comes some caveats, which, of course, comes to let, the... Let me have this one. Let, you go right let ahead. Me, I got let me you. deliver an intro the way only I can. Sure, you got it. Much like so many things in the 70s, there are upsides and downsides. Uh, to get the things that we love... We sometimes had to experience the things that we were less than amused by. Just as there were great moments like 
the the rise of Led Zeppelin. Yeah, all right, that's that's Black Sabbath. Fucking A. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and just as as those things were coming into primacy, there were also moments like seals and crops. So, <laughs> uh, and just like so much of the 70s, like, hey, let's treat people like they're human beings instead of like they're just objects. Uh, and, you know, why don't we stop uh, having, you know, horrible wars? Okay, terrific sentiments. And then along with that came the communal toothbrush and hitchhiking Manson girls. Uh, so there were some downsides as well. This too is true of RuneQuest. Uh, You're going to compare ducks to the hitchhiking Manson girls. Yeah. Intelligent um, talking ducks, which I can only assume uh, right. out of this fantastic setting that is full of very accurate comparisons to classical Bronze Age and Iron Age mythology. Uh, with all of these wonderful things going for it, there's one super oddball thing that is so glaring. The talking, intelligent ducks, which is why to this day, uh, my characters always immediately try to acquire a cache of oranges and plenty of charcoal, so that if Randy as a DM introduces me to any ducks, I will pummel it and then serve duck all around. Uh, yeah, and that misbehavior on my part is purely because I am I am duck biased, and I admit it openly. It's purely biased. It's one of those moments where I'm in the middle of a game playing something that is a game of fantasy, and it is fantastic, and it is out of this world and weird, and then something fantastic and out of this world and weird comes along, and I go, no, that's that's too fantastic, too out of this world and too weird. I can't, I, I mentally can't cope with that. So I know, I know it's irrational bias. But I now hand the floor for the rebuttal I, to my buddy. I have, I have no I, I uh, rebuttal other than I'm just aghast that Duck's... <laughs> Are compared to man hitchhiking Manson. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm just going to say that. Uh, well, um, the 70s, yes, were a weird time, but I don't think it's drugs. I actually have uh, done a little uh, digging on my own. Uh, Dave Albridge, you've been warned. Uh, this is a this is a taste of what's coming your way about ducks. Um, throughout the medieval times on tapestries, you'll find rabbits. And dogs gutting and killing people, boiling them, stabbing them with spears, chasing them around with knives, or occasionally praying, or vomiting, or defecating. It's true, and I, I'm actually going to back him up on that, is that these are illuminated manuscripts uh, from the, the medieval era that depict uh, animal forms uh, interacting with people. And Now, I'm going to mention that in many cases, monks... Selected an animal form intentionally. Yes. Because for political reasons, if you indicated that a particular person that could in any way be compared to anyone with any kind of authority was doing this, uh, you would be the one getting very hot, very sharp things shoved into you at random intervals. So the sidestep for this was to use animalistic forms. Uh, and to illustrate them beautifully. And okay. some of these included scenes of carnage. So that is a totally accurate statement. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, as I was saying, the uh, idea was is that there has always been this kind of anthropomorphic uh, animal that has interacted at times with people or done things. But in a world populated with minotaurs and other chimerical creatures, if ducks is the one that triggers you, then uh, I have only Warner Brothers and Walt Disney 
to direct you to in popular culture. Um, I'm not going to pretend that ducks are a high-minded ideal. Con uh, quite contrary. Uh, they are silly. And I think they're no more goofy than gnomes or some of the silly stuff that goblins and Pathfinder do. They're there for a little bit of comic relief, but I have found in my time playing with uh, hardcore rune questers, which has only been in two groups, that the duck has had a unique place to show off the player who is really ready to take the horns of not just comedy, but being the downtrodden member of the party who's always looked down on it, and then that one moment where they save the party. Don't worry, guys. I'll get the bill. Yeah, that's right. Pa! <laughs> I was trying to go for you. Still my thunder. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, wait, I thought it this whole ruffled point my was... feathers. Oh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> well, I'm, we're pressed for time oh. here, so I'm trying to get my words in. All right, so. And when it's looking at you when you don't know it, it's speaking duck. Well, oh. you know, I just, this stuff just, uh, yeah, it just goes right off my back. It, yeah. It, like I, water like off, water of, off a duck's pack. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but anyway, yeah, trying to get my point across is you steal no, my thunder all I, the I time. I get it, though. You're but right. I, I've got some defensive modes in there, but uh, I'm not getting it overly defended because here's the other thing. I talked to Greg Stafford back, I think it was 98. Uh, Jen County was set up there. He was doing the Asari's thing. He was breaking up, and I said, oh, you're out of Chaosium now? And I was a little stunned, and he's like, yeah. Doing this thing here, and oh, okay. Well, uh, you know, I, 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 are ducks still in there? Yes, ducks are still in there, but uh, you know, if uh, and the guy was super defensive, just kind of jumped right on me <laughs> because he knew he thought it was going to come from a bad place, and he's like, you he know what? I, I make one decision, and everybody thought it was great at the time um, to put in ducks and, and make it kind of a fun thing with uh, some input from other people. And maybe, uh, you know, if they upset you so much, you can just remove them from your game. I'm like, no, I, I totally like ducks. I, I was challenged to play a duck, uh, in third edition RuneQuest, and I really liked it. I, as a matter of fact, turned around and uh, found that, uh, the experience was not only rewarding, but it changed my perspective on how I viewed funny things. And it's all about, a matter of perspective. So some people, yeah, you know, when they see a duck, they're automatically thinking Daffy Duck or Donald Duck. Which, by the way, we have a guy who does a really good Daffy Duck impersonation, so... Yeah, well, this was more of a Howard the Duck level duck in these games. Yeah, right? I think that also... I never have been able... I've always wondered about that one as we're winding this down. We had no I, proof. I, I, I've always wondered if Howard the Duck, which was a great uh, slam comic at the time from yeah. Marvel... Uh, which was just taking tropes and just throwing them in, in uh, the shitter and basically uh, just seeing what, you know, plushing them. Well, you know, they, they threw out a lot of crazy stuff uh, and they could do it in the venue with this kind of throwaway character, yeah, throwaway throw. comic, Howard the Duck, uh, you know, cigar chomping jerk. With a guy uh, with, well, big attitude. Yeah, huge attitude, uh, small delivery. Now, <laughs> this guy, I... You cracked me up. I, yeah, I know, right? Uh, well, uh, Howard the Duck may, in our opinion, have been an influence on the, the ducks in RuneQuest. But we have no proof. I have. I, 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 I can't back that up in any way. I would actually understand it more if that was like a, a cited reference. Like, oh, we really loved Howard the Duck, and so we want to include something like that. You know, where there's just this weird race of talking ducks uh, who are big and, you know, like totally... Bipedal you know, they, and walk around and talk to people. Yeah, they kind of take the place of halflings, and that there are quiet folk who prefer uh, pastoral reaches of lakes and ponds. 
or small swamps and, you know, just kind of live in harmony with nature and do their thing. But, of course, if you don't like ducks, and you don't, then you can remove them. Yeah, sometimes it's just not all it's quacked up to be. That's right. And ah. so, yeah. and you go. I already had the quack me up. You, you right. got the crack. You know, you, you did crack. I, I, I like that. All right. It was a good one. So that. we got our duck jokes in, and uh, <sighs> high praise for RuneQuest and Greg Stafford. Uh, perhaps another time we'll do more on Greg Stafford. A fascinating fellow and really a super nice guy. Yeah, and I'm on board with that 100%. Okay, this is an incredibly literate guy who had a profound influence on games afterwards. My my duck irritations aside, it remains absolutely true. His Pendragon stuff. RuneQuest was fantastic. Pendragon is Yeah, Pendragon. I'm going to run uh, the group to a Pendragon game here, not in the too distant future, and uh, we'll uh, talk about it after we get done playing it. Um, great, all great games from the mind of Stafford, and of course, um, his influence is felt in the industry, and it would be a lesser industry without him. So, I think that as we talk about what ifs, uh, coming up here on Friday, yeah, uh, we're, we're going to talk about him. We're going to touch back on this guy because Greg Stafford and the rise of Glorantha and RuneQuest, uh, are such early protean gaming experiences that honestly, uh, they they you look back. They stand the test of time. Had Gygax and Arneson not come to that moment, you know, th- this is what we're looking at, where the what-if question really got to us. What if Gygax and Arneson never really got off the ground? What if the money guys didn't come through? What if everything blew up in their faces and mm-hmm. they never got it off the ground and the white box, the or even the earliest boxes, never came out? Who would have picked up the, the torch? Who would have been the, the catalyst moment? This is one of those guys that we're going to mention because yep. he was. But we're not going to reveal too much, yeah. so the kimono's closing. He's that important, and we're just going to leave it at that. He's that as, important. As the kimono closes, so does the curtain drop on another podcast. And so sweet relief as the kimono finally closes, uh, and everybody is no longer subjected to me doing jumping jacks or duck jokes. But we had a lot of fun <laughs> doing that, and so we brought it to you. Uh, Give us your thoughts on RuneQuest, uh, if you like it or you hate it, or if ducks were just so annoying you never clicked up the damn game. Let us know in the comments on our Facebook page, or send us one on the Anchor app, or on the Anchor network itself. Just download the Anchor app, and you can send us a message just like that. It's super easy. So, with that, we're going to bid you adieu. We've worn out your eardrums and your patience, probably, so we'll end it with this. May the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. Yeah. Thank you.